Lord, we ask now for your strength and, Lord, your wisdom to um, come into us today as we open up your word. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is the one that gives insight and understanding to those who are your children. We ask, Lord, that there would be freedom for him to do his work in us. And Lord, I ask that as your mouthpiece, that I would be faithful to your text, that what I say, Lord, will be a true reflection of the heart of what it is that you're saying to your people. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Um, life often appears to be wrong, and wrong appears to be right. Um, such was the strange case when a judge by the name of Leon Yankwich, a federal judge in Los Angeles, was presented a civil case that made him want to scream. It was between two men. The first man was Luther Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And the other man was Herman Rong, R-O-N-G-G. And they were battling it out over a patent uh, there in court. And so attempting to moderate the dispute, the judge declared, one of you must be wrong. That's right, replied Rong. I'm wrong, and I'm right. Then Wright interrupted, he's wrong, your honor, I'm right, and wrong is wrong. So who's wrong and who's right? Now, largely upon the strength of a letter that Wright wrote to wrong, the judge terminated the right-wrong dispute by ruling, paradoxical thought, it may appear in this case, right is wrong and wrong is right, and so I enter my judgment. Now this is the confusion that Job had been feeling because he knew that he was in the right and he knew that the accusations that his friends were making against him were wrong. But it seemed like the whole, might want to say, world was against Job, accusing him of his wrongness, of his sin that they're saying was the result or was the reason for all of his suffering. And yet, he knew that he was right. And so he felt that he'd been suffering and that suffering was wrong. And so right and wrong seemed to be confused. Injustice seemed to be prevailing. You know, I think about that whole tension and I think about the end of Romans 1. When the world is turned upside down, where good is called evil and evil is called good. And as we begin this particular section, I want you to notice verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, and Job again took up his discourse. And so this is is a statement letting us know that we've come to a new section in the discussion, in the argument, so to speak, with his friends. Job had been responding to Bildad in chapter 26, but now Job continues to speak to all his friends as the plural you in verses 11 and 12 indicate. So he's moving now from one man to all of his friends. 
And so as this debate comes to an end, and they've been presenting Job as wrong, and that their system, their theological system of retribution is the, the right path forward, Job speaks, but his words are not simply a response to one particular person. These are Job's closing arguments, so to speak, in this debate. And so what we have here is Job's final argument before his friends. Chapter 27 and 28, they both go together. They're both part of this same argument. And so Job here is going to maintain his integrity. He's going to confront and warn his friends about their wicked counsel. And he's also going to reveal that only God knows the true reason why he is suffering. That's really what chapter 27 and 28 is about. And so let's look uh, as we begin here at what I'm calling Job's defense, Job's defense. And here we'll begin at verse 2. And what we find here in Job's defense is an oath, and then you're going to find um, a, a curse, okay? An oath and then a curse, Look at verse 2 and following. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So what is Job saying here? What is he communicating to us through this particular section of Scripture? Well, first of all, he's reaffirming what he has been saying all along, that he is innocent. We find that mentioned a number of times in Scripture, uh, in, in this particular book, I should say, but now he's speaking in a most demonstrable way because he's saying this by means of an oath. And, and in the ancient culture, taking an oath was a serious matter. You know, in our culture, a handshake was what it used to, you know, involve. If you shook hands on it, then you sealed it. And people would hold you to that. Hey, we shook on that. I mean, today, you know, the, the reason why forests are being cut down is because handshakes don't work. Because you've got to have paperwork and paperwork and paperwork and stamped and lawyers and all this kind of stuff. Whereas just, just a promise was all that was needed. Here he comes with an oath. And he's basically saying this. God, kill me if what I am saying is not true. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? In our more recent contemporary language, it's where the expression, I'll be damned if. Now, I realize... Colloquially, it's not used in a proper sense. But where it comes from is saying, if this is not true, what I'm saying, then I'll be damned. God will take my life. I'm saying this, and I'm so confident in saying this that I'm willing to, to, to lift up the stakes here and to show you how serious I am. So Job is so sure of himself of his innocence and integrity, that he is willing to take that chance. He makes his oath before his friends and leaning on the same almighty God who has brought so much suffering into his life. But that should tell you something. Although he is confused about the suffering, he still 
leaning on God for his integrity. Right? Now, in this oath, we find Job speaking in three ways. First of all, he's speaking with integrity. He's saying, I have not sinned. As long as I live, as long as there's breath in me, I will not speak falsehood. I will not utter deceit. You are wrong. Far be it from me to say that you're right. You're wrong to demand that I repent of some unknown sin that you believe that I have committed that has brought about my suffering. I reject that and stand firm on my integrity. You see how, how strong these statements are now. I am making this oath before God and before you. I am innocent and I reject your counsel. In other words, Job is saying to his friends before God and before you, with all of my being, I'm saying that you're wrong. Secondly, he speaks for justice. In verse 1, we talk about God who had taken away Job's right. Job had appealed to God, and he knows that the only person who can vindicate him is God in the courtroom of heaven. But all he has heard is silence. And yet, he hasn't given up on God's justice. He's still maintaining his integrity, and he's leaning on God for the justice that he needs. Third, he's claiming, or he's speaking, with a clear conscience. He says there, my heart does not reproach me. In other words, all that Job is saying in this oath, he is saying with a clear conscience that there's nothing underhanded, nothing manipulative, Nothing deceptive in his declaration of his innocence. Job is digging his heels in here by claiming so boldly that he is innocent. And we must see here that in this, this threefold declaration, the beginning, uh, or right here, is also a reflection of what we find at the beginning of the book that Job was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. That's what the story unfolds at the beginning, telling us about the character of Job, and now Job himself is reinforcing that before God he's innocent, even before his friends that he's innocent. So this is an oath. Now from an oath, he moves to a curse. In general, Job is calling for God's judgment. Judgment in particular on his friends. And who are then the enemies, if you look there at verse 7, let my enemy be as the wicked. Let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. So who are his enemies? Well, anyone who is standing in opposition to Job and aligning themselves with his friends and what they're saying and what they're teaching. This is pretty strong language. You're either for me or you're against me, right? There's no middle ground here. He's not capitulating to anything that they're saying about his integrity. In fact, he's saying, if you continue down this path, may God judge you. Now remember, there were likely many people around listening to some of the discussion that was going on. The three friends were the ones that were talking with Job, but people come and they listen. We know some of that because there's another guy who comes on the scene, Elihu, and he has been listening 
to all the conversation as he brings now his input, right? So the, the reality is that there are people that are there. And probably Job has been watching as they nod their heads in agreement to what his friends are saying and look puzzled when Job speaks about his innocence. Again, let's look at verse 8 and following. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? God, uh, Job is calling on God to judge his three friends, not as companions, but as foes, as people who are opposed to him. And Job notes here that the godless man has no hope when he is cut off. God takes the godless man away for judgment, and they will have no hope when they stand before him. I'm reminded of Psalm 1, verses four, uh, 5 and 6. And this is what it says. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That doesn't mean to stand up physically. What it means is be able to stand up and actually defend themselves. They will not be able to stand, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here's how Job puts it. God will not hear the cry of the wicked when they are in distress. The godless man will not find delight in or call upon God. And the implication here is that Job's three friends were acting like wicked men whom God must deal with. Now, this is hard language. I'm giving you an oath to let you know that I mean what I say, that I'm innocent. But now I'm giving a curse. I'm calling down basically for God to act in judgment against my enemies. And I'm doing it in righteousness because I know I'm innocent and I know that what they have been saying is evil. So Job continues to speak to his friends as a group, but likely now while looking specifically at Eliphaz. Look at verse 11. He says, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? Now, previously, Eliphaz had told Job that he would instruct uh, Job about God. That was in chapter 15, verse 17. And that's why I'm saying Job is, is not just giving a speech. He's, he is actually interacting with things that they have said. And he's probably looking at his friends, but in particular at Eliphaz here, because the tables are turned. They have been reversed. Job now claims that he will teach Eliphaz and his friends about the hand of God. And the hand of God refers to the power of God, but it also refers, refers to the, the way God exercises his power in the affairs of man. He's going to speak to that. And in particular, he's going to focus in on the wicked. And then in verse 12, Job tells his friends that they've seen the evidence. In other words, they've seen, hey, you know what? You've seen my life. You've seen that I am an innocent man. You've seen that I, the way I've treated people. You've seen how I've carried on with my family and stuff and how I've honored God with sacrifices. The evidence is there. But you will not believe because you accuse me in vain. You come up with these ideas and systems that you're locked into when they are not true. Now, Friends, we just want to think through this. It's important for us to see the power here of a clear conscience. Job could not have said these things unless 
his conscience was clear. And, and truly meant it, and truly, you know, people can manipulate and say a lot of things, but I think he's speaking here in all integrity with the desire to say, I am innocent and what you're saying is faulty. But to do that, you must have a clear conscience. So what is the conscience? One person has described the conscience in this way. It is the sentiment of the understanding or perception of the heart by which the voice of God can be heard in our inner beings. In other words, it is the means by which we have trained ourselves in our hearts to be sensitive to the truth of God and the word of God. Um, Your conscience, when trained by God's word, is an inner spiritual alarm, if you want to put it in those terms. And it triggers guilt. It triggers conviction. And what it does is it goes, meh, 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 when you're starting to get close. Now, I have, I have a fear of heights. And I don't mean a strange fear of heights. I just have a normal fear of heights. I don't like jumping off of high cliffs. Anyone here like to do that without a parachute? <laughs> or standing on a skyscraper and looking down on right on the edge. And, you know, that's not natural to me. Right? When, when I come up to a cliff, there's something in me that's saying, eh, 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 danger, 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 right? It's all built into our system. It is a warning system that says, don't go any further. And your whole body begins to feel that. You with me there? Your conscience, then, is something that God has given you that needs to be trained. All right? And it's trained by virtue of the word of God and the things of God, feeding on it, um, um, allowing it to shape and fashion you. Now, uh, when, when, when you violate your conscience and the alarms go off, that signals that you are having a guilty conscience. That's a good thing, okay? If your conscience has been trained appropriately. But the opposite is also true. When the conscience is fashioned and shaped by God's word, we can have freedom to have a clear conscience before God. Others might accuse us of some behavior, calling it sinful, accusing us of some decision we've made. But if your heart is rightly trained, you will not cave in to satisfy your accusers because your conscience is clear before God. This is what has happened to many heroes of the faith through the years who have had to stand before accusers but have stood faithfully with a clear conscience. Probably the most famous that that we know in our circles would be Martin Luther when he was brought to the Diet of Worms and called to recant his teachings and his accusations against the Catholic Church at that point in time. Here is what he said in the end, having gone away, having taken time to pray and reflect on what he was going to say, and he had an opportunity to recant. He comes and stands before this this whole group of, of people, and he says, if then I am not convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear rational arguments, For I do not believe in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it has been established that they have often erred and contradicted each other. I am bound by the Bible text that I have quoted. And as long as my conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot do uh, what I want to retract anything 
when things become doubtful. Salvation will be threatened if you go against your conscience. May God help me. Amen. His whole argument was the word of God and conscience. I cannot violate a biblically fashioned and shaped conscience. And friends, all of us are being challenged today with that, aren't we? The word of God comes and it, it fashions us. Just think of a, think of a, a thermometer that has like a, a kind of a, a bottom end and a top end, right? And, 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 and the thermometer represents your conscience. And um, you have these kind of barriers in, in this thermometer. You don't want to go above it a certain place. And you don't want to go below it. And the word of God fashions where that should be. Now, for some people... You know, they might, their conscience might be really, really tight. I mean, these are the people that are like, you know, you know women always have to wear dresses, um, you know, you know and, and just kind of really kind of extreme um, uh, outward expressions, trying to somehow present myself as, as, as clearly identifying with the Lord. And so it's all based on externals. So their conscience then is really tight because if there's a woman who doesn't wear a dress or the dress is just a little bit too short or a guy who's wearing something that maybe would uh, you know, cause some difficulty, that conscience then, the alarm bells go off. Well, what needs to happen is that the word of God needs to fashion that conscience, not the standards that man has put in place to want to somehow please God. So these, these kind of barriers then are the alarm or the signals that say, warning, warning, warning. A clear conscience is being able to live then within those boundaries. Who determines those boundaries? Well, God does through his word. Which means the more time we spend in God's word, guess what? He's fashioning and shaping our conscience to actually reflect what he desires. So we've got to be careful um, what we're doing and how we're, we're actually shaping that conscience. The third thing, though, is this. It's a warning to us that it's also possible to have a seared conscience. In other words, you're not even sensitive to anything that God's word is saying or for the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your inner man, in your heart. This is not where you want to be, but this is often where you find yourself if you are persistent in your sin. And I'm talking here about believers. You can be so persistent in your sin that you are not even listening to God speak anymore. You're not even listening to the Holy Spirit saying, warning, stop, don't do this. Right? So you have a, a guilty conscience, which is a good thing when it's fashioned rightly. You have a clear conscience, which is where we want to live. And then you have a seared conscience. Now, friends, what's important here then is this, is that having a clear conscience is where we want to live. And Job here says, my heart does not reproach me for any of my days. He's reflecting on what he's saying. He says, my conscience is clear. I am a man of integrity. You are in the wrong and it's a powerful statement, isn't it? His conscience is clear because of his relationship with God. That's what he's leaning on. So that's his defense. Now, we move on to Job's warning. Job's warning. And here we're going to see him as a teacher challenging the pride of his friends. They were promoting their theological viewpoint forcing him into that mold and saying, ah, you're suffering, therefore there must be sin. Job knows that's not true. So he begins by kind of introducing things in verse 13. He says, the, this is the portion of the, the wicked man with God the, and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. In other words, he's laying out the fate 
that God will allocate to the wicked and all who are oppressors of those who are leaning on the Almighty. And he, le- he kind of lays out five stages, family, wealth, security, dreams, and ultimately judgment. So let's look at these together to see what he says about the wicked. Number one, families of the wicked will be destroyed. These are all uh, two verses together as we work our way through, right? The sword, famine, and pestilence, be plagues, right? They'll destroy his many children and future generations. That's what we read there in verse 14 and 15. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive from the pestilence uh, berries, and his widows do not weep. So what's important to see here is that it says in the end, the widows will not weep because they will clearly see that the deaths of their husbands are the result of acts of divine justice. All right, that's the idea there. So there'll be no mourning for them, but it'll be clearly seen that the wicked dying, being judged, is simply part of God's justice on them. Secondly, the wealth of the wicked will be divided. Though he heap up silver like dust, pile up clothing like clay. The idea here is that there's just an abundance of riches. He may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. Right? So according to Job, he who dies with the most clothes and silver does not win anything, but loses it all. Right? You're going to lose it if you're a wicked person. And to add insult to injury, here he's saying, not only are you going to lose it, but those who are righteous will actually inherit it from you. So those who've been guilty of opposing a righteous and innocent servant will not enjoy the prosperity forever. Proverbs uh, 13.22 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So Job is just reinforcing what Scripture says in other places. Third, the security of the wicked will be short-lived. Their security. Where do people typically put their efforts in their security? Well, Two places, their home and their money. They want a home that is fortified, that's strong, that can protect them, that can take care of them and their family, and also they want money because money is power. But the wicked man's home will only be temporary. Notice what it says here. He builds his house like a moth's. What's that? It's a cocoon. Have you ever touched a cocoon? kind of falls apart. It's temporary. It's, it's, not a, it's not a permanent dwelling. Neither is the booth that a watchman makes. A watchman's out there and he's like, man, i got to work today and the sun's hot and all this kind of, I'm going to make sure, going to have a booth out here just to protect my head. The whole point is that dwelling place is only temporary. And that is what it looks like for the wicked. All of their effort, all of their security, all of their dwelling, all of their money is only temporary. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. What riches he has gained in this life will only benefit him on a temporary basis. It will all be fragile security that is removed over the course of one night. While he sleeps in comfort, God will take it all away. 
Now, some of you know what I'm talking about when 2008 hit. You know, one day, portfolios were looking good. The next day, where did it all go? Just took one day. Everything was turned upside down. All right? Judgment is coming is ultimately what is being said here. The judgment of the wicked is coming, and it will be swift. Fourth, the dreams of the wicked will be upended. Verse 20. Terror is overtaken like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. The idea is he's, he's pursuing his path. He's doing his thing. He has his dreams. He has his plans. He's set a course for his life. But God intervenes. He is overtaken. All right? He's carried off. He's lifted up. He's gone. He's swept away is what it says. And what is it that does that? When God intervenes with fearful and powerful terrors. He says, a flood, a whirlwind, the east wind. All of these speak of surprise. You know, in, in more recent years, we have seen, because of technology, um, the power of a tsunami, haven't we? I mean, have you watched some of those videos where people are on the beach and they're having fun and kids are playing, making sandcastles, and off in the distance is this wave? No warning. And this wave comes. People are out there playing. Oh, look, it's still nice out. It's beautiful. It's sunny, and we're having fun. Let's have a drink. And all of a sudden, this wave comes in, and it comes in with such force that it just sweeps people away. People drown. Buildings are just devastated, demolished. And it comes way into the city, and the city is, is now destroyed in many ways. It happens suddenly. That's the idea here. There's this flood. There's a tsunami. And then there's tornadoes. I lived in Michigan for a while. We don't get tornadoes here in California, at least not as much as we had in Michigan. In Michigan, I mean, they, they had the, the, the warning alarms, and every... Every Saturday at 1 o'clock, the alarm would go off, you know, just to make sure that everyone knew the tornado sound. But when you heard that tornado warning, boom, go down into your basement, make sure you were safe. And sure enough, you come out, you find out where did it hit. You don't know where it's going to hit. And it can happen fast, and it can hit with devastation, and it can just destroy the picture here is this is happening fast. The dreams of the wicked will be upended. His judgment on the wicked will be sudden, unpredictable, and thoroughly devastating. That is his challenge and his warning to his friends and ultimately to the wicked. And finally, the judgment of the wicked will be horrid. Now, this is the east wind being talked about. It's known as the the Palestinian Shirako that blows from the desert into Palestine. And it, it, it blows with incredible force and devastation. It can destroy homes. It can destroy crops. And so what we have here then in verse 22 and 23 is a description of that in poetic form. It hurls at him, the wicked man, without pity, he flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps at, uh, its hands at him, and it hisses at him from its place. Let's think through what those things mean. 
Here we're told it hurls itself with, with vicious force. It claps its hands in laughing mockery. It hisses with contempt at the wicked man. All of these terrors are happening because of God. God is the source, and he is the agent of their judgment. Now, friends, let's just step back a little bit and think through what is being said here. And understand this. It is a dangerously foolish thing to walk the path of the wicked man and shake your fist at God and oppose those who are his. Now, people might do that with you. They might do that with this church. They might do that in society against God and his people, shaking their fists, saying, ah, oh, you know, this God you're worshiping, you Christians, whatever. Guess what? Judgment's coming. And we need to be sure that we understand that that judgment actually is coming, that we don't forget that. Because in the moment, we might be overcome with those statements. We might be intimidated by the things that are being said. God's children, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, are innocent. They are righteous in the sight of God. Not because they have stopped Sinning, but because their sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for by the one who is righteous. And when they are forgiven, they are clothed in his righteousness. And so, friends, it's important for us to understand here that in the, in, in the, the presence of the, the barrage of hatred toward Christ and even his people, that we need to rest in who we are as God's children. Listen to what the Apostle Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. This is really important for us to understand, friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now remember, the Corinthian church was a messed up church. They struggled with all sorts of sin, and Paul's writing to correct a lot of that. But... In this passage, one of the things that he does is he's reminding the people of who they were and who they are. Look at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll read down through verse 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So here we find three words that describe what happens to an unrighteous or wicked man or woman when they are the recipients of God's grace through the gospel. These three words speak about a one-time event, not an ongoing reality. First of all, you were washed. At the moment of your salvation, friends, hear this, because of your identity with Christ, you were washed. In God's eyes, you are totally clean. Secondly, you were sanctified, which means that you are now holy in God's eyes. All right, this is not an ongoing battle for holiness. This is a one-time thing. Moment of salvation, you're washed. You are sanctified. Third, you are justified. That means that you have moved from unrighteousness to being 
righteous. Now just think through that, friends. All this happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is a spiritual dynamic, an endeavor that comes from God to those who are unrighteous. And God declares, you're washed, you're sanctified, you are justified. Friends, this is who you are if you are in Christ. Washed, sanctified, justified. Say it with me. Washed, sanctified, justified. What a privilege. What a joy. What a means of grace. But let's remember, Paul is describing people who were once opposed to God, who have now been changed because of God. That's what the church is made up of. And this, this list of, of you know, descriptions of the Corinthian converts is really a reflection of what made up their church. And friends, this could be a description of our church, the sexually immoral, the idolatrous, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And it's not an exhaustive list. The point he's making is, you were unrighteous, you were ungodly, but now because of Christ, you're righteous. You've been made new. Friends, that doesn't change when you are being falsely accused. That doesn't change when people are trying to manipulate you to repent of sins that you haven't committed. This is who you are in Christ. God takes ungodly people and turns them into his own children. Now hear this. Notice that the heading here is Job's warning and that's important for us to understand because although what he's saying is bold, it's powerful, it is a warning to his friends, and it's stark in its warning, but behind his warning is a desire for his friends to hear and to listen and to repent and to change. You get that? And oftentimes when we think of the ungodly, we think of them as our enemies when we should be thinking of them as our potential brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should be a heart. At the same time, we also recognize that it is God who is going to bring judgment on people who will continue to dig their heels in against him and bowing their heart before him. Now the good news for Job as even though he warns his friends here, in the end, what happens? Job, or God confronts Job's friends. And he says, you better listen to what he says. He's going to pray for you. Job goes and sacrifices. Job prays. God accepts the, the prayer of Job on behalf of his friends, and they are reconciled to God. All right, so there, there, is, there is a resolve here that's taking place. And friends, warnings are good. They may be strong. They may be powerful. They may, they may shake us a little bit, but they are good because they bring about, um, for, for some, not for all, um, this opportunity to come face-to-face -face with God. Now, 
we've looked at two sections here, and now we want to look at chapter 28. You could look at chapter 28 just by itself, and you would miss the point of 28. It's a beautiful picture of wisdom and where wisdom comes from. But there's a point why Job is bringing it there, and here's the reason why. What we've seen so far is Job speaking about the what, the fact of his innocence. But he knows that he's innocent, but he doesn't know why he's suffering. And so he needs to to know why he's suffering. And he's saying the only place you can go to really get an understanding of why he's suffering is to go to God. And so in chapter 28 here, we have this wonderful, beautiful picture of what wisdom is. And the question, of course, that's being asked is how can we get wisdom? Well, first of all, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Right? Very simply stated. Spurgeon said this, To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. For there is no fool so great as a fool, uh, fool as that knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. So on a practical level, using basketball terminology or analogy, Stephen Curry is a wise basketball player. He understands the game. He understands his skill. He understands how his team works. And he's very, very effective at doing that. Draymond Green, probably not the wisest basketball player on Thursday night. Um, if you happen to watch that game or not. If you want someone to work on your car, you want a wise mechanic. Does that mean he's sitting in his office just reading books after books? No, it means that he has the knowledge, but he has the knowledge that is applied to the task of being a mechanic. He not only knows the theory, but he practically knows how to do it. Again, if you are sitting in class and you're under a professor, you can be under a professor that's all full of knowledge, and he is so disconnected with the world that all he is is just blowing out knowledge, right? You really want to sit under a professor who knows the material but knows how to bring it and flesh it out so that you can understand how it connects to your life and how to use it in that field of study. So wisdom, then, is the practical use the skillful use of that knowledge. And from a biblical perspective, wisdom is taking God's truth and being skillful in its application of it in practical ways, um, wherever you might be living, whatever you might be facing. So it's applying God's truth in practical and skillful ways. So where can you get wisdom? Where can it be found? First of all, let's notice this. Wisdom cannot be mined. That's what the this verses 1 through 11 are talking about. And you'll notice as you go through here all these descriptions of, of jewels and gold. And look at verses 1 and 2. Surely there's a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. So this mining metaphor now helps us understand uh, some things about wisdom. These, these men are, are so diligent that they're wor- willing to work so hard to get these precious stones and precious metals out of the ground in the most difficult of circumstances. Notice it talks there about deep darkness and shafts that are, and tunnels that are under the ground. 
And, and, and this person will go places where the birds don't, don't go. Falcons with their incredible eyesight cannot see. And the proud or powerful beasts who are strong have not ventured. They don't go there. But man, because he knows the value of those precious stones, is willing to put himself in difficult situations to get those jewels. See, above the ground, we're told there, in verse, uh, verse 5, uh, you can easily find agriculture. It's what comes as, you know, bread comes out. There's food that comes out of the ground. It grows on top of the ground. You can see all that. But underneath it is where all these jewels, where all these precious stones and precious metals are from. So it's difficult work, but it's also dangerous work, friends. Right? He overturns mountains, we're told. He cuts out channels in the rock because he's hungry for the precious jewels and expensive metals. Now, friends, what's going on here is that Job is saying, listen, wisdom is something that you want, but you cannot mine it. You can't just go and, and, and labor with your own human effort to get it. In other words, you can go to all the universities you want and you can get degree after degree after degree, but you may not have wisdom. And you've probably met some people like that. They have all sorts of knowledge in their head, but on a practical level, they have really difficulty communicating with common man. Their social skills are just out to lunch. They don't have applied wisdom. Secondly, wisdom cannot be mined, neither can it be bought. The next motif here, similar though, is, is not so much mining, but it's the, it's the idea of money and value and worth. This is verses 12 through 22. Now, modern society, if you listen enough, thinks that anything can be obtained or accomplished if you only have enough money. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, next time you go to the voting booth and there's a proposition on the ballot, it's likely asking you to say yes, and so in turn, raise your taxes. Promising that you are going to have you know, a better police force that's gonna fight crime, a better fire department that's gonna come to your aid, the, the education in the schools is going to be improved because of this, or pollution is going, to, is going to be eradicated, or jobs will be created, and so on, and so on, and so on. It all takes money. We just need more money. If we only have more money, now the reality is, I think many times, if money is used wisely, and for what it's set aside for, there's a lot of things that could actually be taken care of. But man thinks that money is the, is the answer. All right? But, but wisdom cannot be bought. Now, let's read verses 12 through 19. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the, the sea says, it is not with me. So it, it, it cannot be found in those places. Verse 15, it cannot be bought for gold. And silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. It's in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral and crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. Topaz uh, of Ethiopia cannot equal it. And and nor can it be valued in pure gold. Job mentions gold five times in this section, silver one time, and seven different precious stones are mentioned here. 
And none of these individually or collectively can purchase the wisdom of God. He's just saying, and he's reinforcing it, you cannot buy wisdom. Proverbs 13, 15 says this, wisdom is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Job is being consistent here. You can't mine it, and you cannot purchase it. So where does wisdom come from? Where can it be found? Well, the answer is right at the end. He's driving to this point. Verse 20, from where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. In other words, if you go as high as you can in our atmosphere where birds fly, you won't find wisdom there. If you go as low as you can go where Abaddon and death are, you will not find it there. God understands the way to it. It's only God who knows where to find wisdom. He knows its place because he can see everything. He is all-knowing and can see all that has taken place on the world and in the heavens. And so he brings out now his creation to, to reinforce that. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree of the rain and, and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. So here we're, we're looking at creation, and we're seeing here the wind is uniquely weighted by God. God is the one who's determining the weight of the wind blowing through Castro Valley today. The waters are carefully apportioned and measured by God. God is in control of how the waters flow and how much they flow. If God let go of that control, we would be in chaos. God has the wisdom to adjust the pressure of the wind and measure the amount of water in the atmosphere. If these, if these were not so, we would be in real trouble. The rain, the lightning, and the thunder are all decreed by God. Why? Because he is the source of knowledge and wisdom. He saw it, he declared it, he established it, he searched it out. And he, fin he finishes up here by answering the question to this where is wisdom question in verse 28. This is the punchline. Everything's been driving toward this. His, um, his, his oath, his curse, his warning is all pushing now to this particular verse. Behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, that's a long journey to get to this, isn't it? But he's trying to lay this foundation to say, listen, you think you are wise, but you are not. Only God is the source of wisdom. But I want you to look back at Job chapter 1 and verse 1. Go, Job chapter 1, verse 1. And just connect it here with what we're reading. Here's what we're reading. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Here's how the book begins. There was a man of the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright who, what? Feared God and turned away from evil. Job, by his declaration, is a wise man. In spite of what his friends were saying, this is who Job is. 
And according to verse 28, there are two sides to wisdom, fear of the Lord and the turning away from evil. So what is the fear of the Lord? Fear of the Lord is a loving reverence for God, for who he is, for what he says, for what he does. It's not the kind of fear that paralyzes, but it's the kind of fear that energizes. In other words, when you are interacting with God and you are fearful of him, you're not just like, oh, you're like, you are so awesome, but he welcomes you, and it energizes you to live for him. It energizes you to want to hear from him, to submit yourself to him. So when you fear the Lord, you obey his commandments. You walk in his ways. You serve him. You're loyal to him. You depart from evil. And the fear of the Lord is the fear that conquers fear, for if you fear God, you need not fear anyone else. And when people come and make accusations against you that are false, when they intimidate you, when they try and twist your arm to capitulate to their system, you don't need to fear them because you're one who is protected by God. He is the one that you need to fear. Secondly, what does it mean to turn away from evil? It simply means that you are growing in an understanding of what is evil in the sight of the Lord. By God's grace, you are pursuing a life that is going in the opposite direction from evil. I like Psalm 1. And to me, Psalm 1 is just a great psalm to memorize. There's so much connected in Scripture to that psalm, right? Psalm 1.1 says this. Blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, right? Doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. This is, he's, he's turning away from evil. He's not caught up with the drift toward evil, see? He's very mindful to say, nope, not going there, not listening to that, not sitting with these people, not joining in. So it means seeing sin for what it truly is, evil in God's sight, and determining by God's grace to strive hard against it. So in summary then, Job is communicating two things about himself to his three friends. One, that his conscience is clear in declaring before God and his friends that he is innocent. This is the what. That although, this is number two, um, he nor his three friends know why God is bringing about suffering. That God, who is the source of all wisdom, does know why. Now friends, there's nothing new about that statement to you if you've been here going through Job. You've heard that over and over and over again. And part of the reason it is something that is repeated for us is because we need to hear it. Because every trial seems fresh, seems new. And we need to be reminded that God is fully aware. And he knows why this calamity, why this trial, why this suffering is coming to us. If we don't know, we know that he knows. And we might be innocent. We might say, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And you may be completely right. Your conscience may be clear before God. And those who, through involving people who are accusing you, in one sense, are the people who need to be warned to not come to wrong conclusions. But ultimately, you stand before God with your clear conscience, leaning into him without full knowledge of your circumstances, trusting that he is accomplishing his will even through your suffering. 
My friends, I, I'm just looking around here and I just, I'm seeing people with all sorts of different kinds of trials and difficulties and heartaches and burdens. Our God is seated on his throne. And you and I may not be able to connect dots, but God is fully aware and fully in control and he is at work. Your job is to be faithful to live for him and for his glory, seeking to have a clear conscience before him, reflecting the gospel, doing what you can to honor him practically with your life, living for his glory. And if you don't know why, you know that there is one who does. And you need to lean into him. You need to trust him. And friends, this will help you when you pray. This will help you when you counsel. This will help you when you're in the midst of the turmoil and the ugliness of all those different kinds of trials. God, you're in control. And I'm going to give this to you. Lord, help us today. We have covered a large section, Lord, of, of your truth. And Lord, I know that it's been theoretical in many ways, but yet as we, as we push it down, there's so much practical that comes out of it. Lord, help us not to be intimidated wrongly by those who might accuse us, as Job's friends were doing, whose ideologies were, were, were seeking to be helpful, but were causing more harm and difficulty. Ultimately, Lord, may we find our identity in you and may we find our hope in you and may we find our wisdom in you, especially, Lord, when things are not clear. And Lord, I, I pray for families who are struggling today. I pray for marriages. I pray for, for children who have wandered off. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering physically. And for those who are experiencing financial difficulty or who may be going through some kind of a, a job crisis or Lord, people who may be trying to figure out what's going on in their world, maybe they've uh, come from a, a context where um, there has been a variety of different kinds of abuse, whether it's spiritual abuse, whether it's physical abuse. Oh Lord, life is full of trouble. And Lord, Joe's suffering was great. And our suffering seems small in comparison. But you want us, first of all, to know that you are God. You are God. And as your children, you want us to live our lives with a conscience that is clear before you. Knowing that you will bring about justice in your time. Lord, help us to lean into that. Help us to grow because of that. Lord, help us to pray, not just for ourselves, but for one another in light of that. Help us today, we ask in your precious name.